Good afternoon. This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on Multilateral in International Development, Multilateral Institutions, and International Economic, Energy, and Environmental Policy will come to order. Today's hearing represents our subcommittee's second hearing of the year. I, of course, want to thank uh, the ranking member, Senator Merkley, for joining me again to convene this hearing. The purpose of today's hearing is to assess the United Nations Human Rights Council. We're joined by an impressive panel of witnesses this afternoon, and I'd like to welcome them. Uh, the Honorable Kristen Silverberg, who previously served as the Assistant Secretary of State for International Organization Affairs. Welcome to you. The Honorable Tom Malinowski, who previously served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor. Good day, sir. Mr. Hillel Neuer, who is Executive Director of UN Watch. I'll note that Mr. Neuer traveled from Europe to testify today, and I'm very grateful for his willingness to be here. Thank you. And last but certainly not least, we're joined by Mr. Ted Picone. He's Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution. Thank you. So I welcome e each of you, and before beginning our assessment of the United Nations Human Rights Council, perhaps it's helpful to step back for a moment and assess the role that the promotion of human rights should play in our foreign policy. The Declaration of Independence declared that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. While we know that our nation has spent much of our history trying to narrow the gap between these self-evident truths and our daily reality, it's noteworthy that our founders used the phrase, all men. Today, we would expect they would say all men and women, but the point is that our founders didn't suggest these inalienable rights were limited to just Americans. If we accept the fact that these rights aren't reserved for Americans alone, but are instead universal rights, then we have an obligation to ensure these universal human rights inform not only our domestic policy, but our foreign policy as well. Yet promoting and protecting human rights internationally isn't just a matter of principle or just a matter of morality. Promoting and protecting universal human rights overseas also helps secure American national security interests. As Ambassador Haley has emphasized in her UN Security Council remarks, uh, most recently on April 18, the protection of human rights is awfully deeply intertwined with peace and security. As she observes, human rights violations can often serve as the trigger for a conflict. As an example, Ambassador Haley cited the fact that the terrible Syrian conflict that has generated so many threats to American national security, not to mention heart-wrenching human suffering, started when the Assad regime failed to respect the universal human rights of a group of young boys opposed to the regime. So in short, both our principles and our interests, our values and our security, are advanced when the promotion of universal human rights figures prominently, not peripherally, in U.S. foreign policy. It's both wrong and short-sighted to believe that we can better protect our national security interests by ignoring or sidelining human rights. Perhaps that's why the United Nations Charter that our country played a pivotal role in establishing states clearly in Article 1 that one of the four purposes of the UN is to promote and encourage respect for human rights and for fundamental freedoms for all, without distinction as to race, sex, language, or religion. 
American national security interests are best served when the United Nations effectively fulfills this core purpose. That's why we want the UN Human Rights Council to effectively fulfill its responsibility of promoting universal respect for the protection of all human rights and fundamental freedoms for all. So as Ambassador Haley prepares to go to Geneva in June for the, for the 31st, 35th rather, regular session of the UN Human Rights Council, it is timely and appropriate to assess how the Council is doing in the fulfillment of its mission and to ask why U.S. policy should be toward, uh, what, what U.S. policy should be toward the Council. While I look forward to listening to the expert testimony of our esteemed witnesses, I'd like to make two quick and initial observations. First, as Deputy, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for International Organization Affairs, Aaron Barkley said in Geneva in March, regrettably, too many of the actions of this council do not support those universal principles. Indeed, they contradict them. Perhaps this is not surprising. Some of the world's worst human rights abusers are on the Council. China and Cuba are members, for example. Yet according to Freedom House, they have the worst or second to worst rankings possible for political rights and civil liberties. Second, the Council has exhibited a systematic, reflexive, and frankly shameful bias against Israel, our closest and most reliable ally in the Middle East. Israel is the only country in the world that is subjected to a permanent agenda item. When countries with the worst possible human rights records sit on the Human Rights Council, they seek to deflect attention from their egregious human rights abuses and attempt to pass judgment on Israel, a country that boasts a vibrant liberal democracy. The credibility of the Council is further undermined and the United States must not be silent. America, I believe, is at its best when it models and promotes respect for universal human rights. We should expect the same from the UN Human Rights Council and its members. So with those thoughts in mind, I would now like to call on our ranking member, Senator Merkley, for his opening remarks. Senator Merkley. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, for holding this hearing, and thank you to our distinguished guests for bringing your expertise here to the halls of the U.S. Senate. Promoting human rights is a long-standing bipartisan pillar of American foreign policy, essential not only to our foreign policy, but to whom we are as Americans. President Kennedy, just months prior to his assassination, affirmed that our nation, quote, was founded on the principle that all men are created equal and the rights of every man are diminished when the rights of one man are threatened. President Reagan, in a 1986 speech before the United Nations General Assembly, said, respect for human rights is not social work. It is not merely an act of compassion. It is the first obligation of government and the source of its legitimacy, and it is the foundation stone in any structure of world peace. The United States has used the United Nations as a platform to advance basic human rights since its inception. As a universal body, the United Nations holds great promise but advancing human rights in an intergovernmental body with autocrats determined to hide and deflect their abuses has been difficult. The Soviet Union pushed hard against Eleanor Roosevelt at the original UN Commission on Human Rights, but she persevered. Her leadership led to the adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which in turn inspired Lech Walesa, Nelson Mandela, and other champions of freedom and human dignity. 
The United Nations Human Rights Council, like its predecessor, remains a troubling forum for the United States. Its membership, as my chairman pointed out, includes countries with appalling human rights records, determined to shield some of the world's worst human rights abusers from scrutiny. Its membership's excessive and disproportionate focus on Israel is shameful, inexcusable, and cheapens the body. The Human Rights Council seems to work better, however, when America leads. Appalling human rights abuses in North Korea have been documented and added to the agenda of the UN Security Council. The rights and dignity of LGBT individuals have been affirmed. Human rights abuses in Iran have been uncovered. Attempts to unfairly malign Israel have been countered. Speaking to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, President Reagan said, that document, a triumph for the higher aspirations of mankind, is but words on paper unless we're willing to act to see that it is taken seriously. And he continued, we owe it to ourselves and to those who sacrificed so much for our liberty to keep America in the forefront of this battle. I look forward to hearing our witnesses' views on where the United Nations Human Rights Council is working, where it is falling short, and how it can do better. And I look forward to hearing your views on how the United States can continue to lead on human rights, both at the UN Human Rights Council and in other ways. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I want to welcome our witnesses again. Your full written statements will appear in the record. I ask you to summarize those statements in, in roughly five minutes, uh, about five minutes each, if you can. For opening statements, let's go in the order that I introduced you. Ms. Silverberg? Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Merkley, thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today to assess the record of the Human Rights Council. It's an honor to appear with the distinguished experts joining me on this panel. I served as Assistant Secretary of State from 2005 to 2008, including during the General Assembly debate over the resolution creating the Human Rights Council. When the resolution creating the Council failed to meet our core objectives, we voted against the resolution and decided not to seek membership. We did not approach that decision lightly. President Bush had made promotion of democracy and human rights a core objective of U.S. policy. Consistent with that policy, we worked to support inclusive government in Iraq, to defend the rights of women in Afghanistan. We worked to focus international attention and sanctions when appropriate on abusive regimes in Burma, Cuba, and Zimbabwe and to support civil society in countries like Venezuela, Egypt, and Bolivia. President Bush was the first head of state to call the tragedy in Darfur a genocide. He put new resources behind efforts to support democratic reforms, and he personally met with dissidents from 35 countries. Engagement at the UN was a critical part of this strategy. We supported the Office of the High Commissioner on Human Rights, had an active agenda in the Third Committee of the General Assembly, we supported efforts to include human rights-related issues on the agenda of the Security Council, drawing the link between peace and security and human rights, just as Ambassador Haley had, and added Burma to the agenda for the first time. And we worked through the Security Council to support democracy in Lebanon and to expand UN peacekeeping operations. There was no question in my mind that as part of this effort, we would benefit from a new, credible, multilateral institution capable of supporting countries attempting to reform 
and of responding decisively to violations of human rights. It was also clear to me that the UN Human Rights Council, as constituted in 2006, would not be that institution. There are a number of issues, but most particularly, UN negotiators and the General Assembly rejected proposals to ensure a credible membership. There are a number of ways to help ensure that countries joining the Council had a good faith commitment to advancing and defending human rights, a supermajority requirement, a ban on regional consensus candidates, even a provision to bar some of the worst human rights offenders from membership. The negotiators rejected all of them. The potential for the Human Rights Council was further undermined when at the end of the Council's first year, a few members decided to adopt, in the dark of night, a permanent agenda item on Israel and then to deny Canada, a member of the Council, its procedural right to vote against the decision. The adoption of Item 7 has been a stain on the Council ever since. And I'll point out that Item 7 was originally adopted in 2007 when the Bush administration was not participating in the Council but was reaffirmed in 2011 when the Obama administration was a member. The Council has done good work, to be clear, on issues like North Korea and Burma. However, the Human Rights Council runs on horse trading. When the U.S. is running an initiative in the Council, it typically ends up compromising on something else, and that something else is too often our support for Israel. So where does that leave the Trump administration? in light of the 2016 election of the U.S. to the Human Rights Council. Even the most skilled effort at renegotiating terms for the Human Rights Council will be challenging, but I believe the Trump administration should try, with a date certain to assess whether progress has been made and whether the Human Rights Council can serve as a credible and vigorous voice on human rights. Failing key progress, I believe the administration should leave. There are a number of reform targets the administration should consider. I'll raise just a couple example, examples. One is during the fall General Assembly session, the administration could put forth an amendment to the institution building package to remove item seven from the council's agenda, and I expect we could talk more about that. Second, the U.S. could secure agreements from regions not to run consensus candidates to give the General Assembly choices in electing Human Rights Council members. And third, and this relates to the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, I believe that the United States should ask to put senior Americans in key posts and particularly to try to fill the Office of the Chief of the Human Rights Council branch. Whatever decision the Trump administration makes on this issue, I hope it will find ways to reaffirm the U.S. commitment to serving as the world's leading defender of freedom and human rights. I applaud the subcommittee for its focus on this issue and look forward to your questions. Thank you, Ms. Silverberg. Mr. Malinowski, sir. Thank you, uh, Senator Young, Senator Merkley, uh, for holding this hearing and for inviting me to testify. I will argue today that the UN Human Rights Council is a highly imperfect institution that has nonetheless improved under American leadership. It is more useful than it might at first appear, and we have become increasingly good at advancing our interests and ideals there. Rather than ceding this battle space to our adversaries, we should continue to fight to make it better. We should focus relentlessly and pragmatically on winning and not withdrawing. In saying that, I will acknowledge that much of the criticism of the Council uh, over the years 
has been justified, including all of the items that, uh, that you and Ms. Silverberg uh, mentioned, the membership of the council, the presence of human rights violators among its members, the outrageous uh, bias against Israel that it has displayed. But I've noticed something else over the years which has made me um, less skeptical and increasingly convinced that the council is an important institution. I've noticed that our ideological adversaries take a great interest in it. Countries like Cuba and China and Russia and Egypt and Pakistan, they dedicate enormous diplomatic resources to try to influence this body's decisions. Now, why, why is that, especially given the fact that all it can do is issue paper resolutions? It has no power to compel anybody. I think the reason is that at bottom, the fight for human rights is a contest of ideas. Um, we hold, and others hold, the idea that you eloquently stated, that human rights are universal, that every country has a duty to uphold them. That idea is profoundly threatening to authoritarian governments around the world because it threatens their legitimacy. I'm sure you've noticed that when the U.S. Congress passes paper resolutions condemning some country for human rights abuses, it doesn't get a lot of attention here, but huge attention in those countries, and you are lobbied very hard by the representatives not to do it. Those resolutions only speak for the United States. When this body speaks, it speaks for the whole world. That's a very, very powerful thing. This is why every session of the Human Rights Council, courageous human rights activists from all around the world, sometimes at great personal risk, travel there to testify. And it's why the bad guys try so hard to silence it. And I think if it's important to them, it ought to be important to us to stand with the good guys and to try to help them win these battles in Geneva. And I think where we have dedicated the time and the diplomatic resources to do that, we have been pretty successful. Since 2009, I would say we have won virtually every winnable fight that we have put our minds to winning at the Human Rights Council. It's not good enough yet, but we have shown that we can win. In 2006, in its first year of, uh, in existence, when the United States was not a member, the Human Rights Council passed exactly zero resolutions concerning human rights in specific countries other than Israel. Since we rejoined in 2009, the situation has changed dramatically. In 2015, it passed 26 such resolutions, 22 in 2016. Um, some of them have been mentioned, the establishment of the historic commission of inquiry for North Korea, the condemnations of Iran, uh, South Sudan, uh, the w votes we have won on Syria, which Russia fought really, really hard to defeat, and we won those fights. On Ukraine, same thing. Sri Lanka, I was involved as a diplomat in trying to promote the democratic transition that is underway in Sri Lanka, away from civil war and dictatorship. And I can attest that the resolutions passed by the council were absolutely critical in helping along that um, diplomatic process. Many, many other examples we can cite, and I think these are real American diplomatic achievements. Now, the membership remains a problem, particularly because of the system of closed slates that some regions run, but where there have been competitive elections recently, the worst human rights violators have, in some cases, done pretty badly. Most dramatically, last year, Russia ran for membership, and everyone assumed that a permanent member of the Security Council, permanent members by tradition, always get what they want in the, in the, in the UN system. 
Russia lost because of its horrible, horrific conduct um, in Syria. That was a stunning um, triumph, I think. Um, with respect to Israel, the situation, I would say, remains unacceptable, but I think we have made some modest progress through uh, our uh, presence. Um, in uh, the early years of the Council, um, a, virtually every resolution that it passed was on Israel. That share is now way, way down. There were, I think, about six special sessions on Israel in the years when we weren't a member, only one in the years when we, uh, when we have been. Um, the progress that we still need to make on that issue, I would make, I think, this point. Um, we need to focus on who is actually to blame. And who is to blame is not this institution, which has no will of its own, but the member countries who are pushing these anti-Israel institutions. Now, who are they? Egypt, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, close U.S. partners. They get a lot of assistance from the United States. Um, and yet, we never seem to hold them accountable for their behavior in Geneva. We criticize the council, but not the member states that are responsible. Can we make this situation better by threatening to leave? Well, if we found ourselves in a situation where we could no longer get anything useful done at the Human Rights Council, I'd say, sure, let's leave. But I don't think threatening to leave gives us any leverage for this simple reason. The countries that are responsible for most of the mischief in Geneva want us to leave. So threatening to leave, it would be kind of like telling a bunch of criminals that if you keep robbing banks, the police are going to go on strike. I'd rather have the police there, well-resourced, on duty, fighting and focusing on winning. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, sir. Mr. Neuer. Chairman Young, Ranking Member Merkley, thank you for inviting me to testify on the important matter of assessing the United Nations Human Rights Council ahead of the visit of Ambassador Haley to Geneva, and indeed we will welcome her visit very much. I believe that the U.S. should remain on the Council, not because this body is upholding its mission to promote and protect human rights, but uh, on the contrary, because the Human Rights Council is a dangerous place, and I believe for America to promote its values and the founding values of the United Nations. America should remain, it should fight, it should go on the record, it should lead its allies, it should call out abuses. And this is a body, whether we like it or not, that influences the hearts and minds of hundreds of millions of people. And we should not abandon that arena. And if possible, on those rare occasions when an alliance can be found to spotlight abusers, America should lead that effort. That's concerning values. There's also interests. America has interests to stay on the Council. It is an influential arena. There is a reason why countries around the world vie to win a seat. America has a seat, and I think it would be uh, foolish to give up that position of influence. Uh, on human rights, the United States has to lead by what it says and what it does. That's why I criticized the president when he called certain media institutions the enemy. When he did so, I happened to be next to Chan Dundar, a Turkish journalist who was called the enemy by his president, and soon after he was shot at and almost killed in Turkey. We honored him recently in Geneva. America has to lead on human rights. 
Of course, when we talk about the media, it is legitimate to question and criticize uh, certain articles that appear in the media. One which I will challenge today is an article that appeared in March of this year in the New York Times by their UN correspondent, which expressed extraordinary skepticism concerning Ambassador Haley uh, when she said that the Human Rights Council was so corrupt. And I quote from the article, she dismissed the Human, the Human Rights Council as so corrupt without offering evidence. And that skepticism remained in the article. So, uh, yes, the Human Rights Council has taken action on a number of cases. North Korea is one of them. Uh, yes, there are many good people who work in the related Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, which supports the work of the Council. And there are good special rapporteurs who are independent experts who do good work to spotlight abuses. But on so many levels, the Human Rights Council is so corrupt. And ahead of Ambassador Haley's visit, allow me to present some of that evidence. There is corruption that is financial. Uh, one gentleman, a, the longest-serving UN human rights expert uh, in Geneva, is a man named Jean Ziegler, who's been there for about 17 years. You can't get rid of the guy. He was special rapporteur on hunger, and now he's on their advisory committee. He was recently celebrated by the Human Rights Council at their opening high-level session. There was a film made about his life where the head of the Human Rights Council branch, the chief of the HRC branch of the Office of the High Commissioner, went to sing his praises. Jean Ziegler is someone who was appointed by the Cubans around the year 2000. He created the Muammar Gaddafi Human Rights Prize in 1989. He went on to manage that prize from Geneva. He boasted about it, and boasted about it in Time magazine, saying that he had $10 million from the Gaddafi government to manage this prize which they gave to Chavez, Castro, uh, Louis Farrakhan, and a Holocaust denier in the year 2002, in the same year that Jean Ziegler himself, as a UN expert, went to Libya and won that prize, which, by the way, came with $100,000 per year. Um, he recently he denied it for 10 years. When we exposed the video of him receiving the prize, he admitted it, said the office of the high commissioner made him give back the prize, but the money, no one has ever investigated what he did with that money. Not surprisingly, Ziegler was an ardent advocate uh, opposing sanctions on the Gaddafi regime while he was implicated uh, in ties with that regime. Uh, the official of the Human Rights Council who praised Ziegler recently, senior head of the HRC branch, was himself recently accused by a member of his own office of having received money from a member of the Arab League uh, to help launch his book. There is also corruption that is ethical. When... Um, Richard Falk, who was the special rapporteur on Palestine for six years, someone who is a leading supporter of the 9-11 conspiracy theory. When he finally had to leave because of term limits, the day he left, his wife came in, Hilal Elver, as the new special rapporteur on hunger. She is not only his wife, but also a co-collaborator with him on his works um, and has accused Israel of water apartheid. Uh, she's the expert on hunger, yet Venezuela, where people are starving, she has completely ignored. On the contrary, she has tweeted uh, Maduro propaganda saying that the problems of starvation are caused by capitalists uh, and people from the outside. Uh, there is corruption on the commissions of inquiry. The head of the recent commission of inquiry on Gaza was a man named William Shabis, who was an anti-Israel campaigner for 30 years, said that his dream defendant was Benjamin Netanyahu, and he was then made the chief of this, in this investigation. Today we released a uh, legal brief, which we submitted to the UN Secretary General, where we uh, exposed the fact that one of the leading staffers on the Goldstone Commission, which is relevant because it will be cited in a new report coming out in a matter of days at the upcoming June session, um, a lead staffer was a woman named Grichia Bars, who her too, she too was a, uh, 
a senior organizer of anti-Israel legal campaigns. She was one of the professional objective staffers uh, who played a critical part in gathering that report. Uh, in summary, Mr. Chairman, uh, members of the subcommittee, uh, the Human Rights Council was founded on the promise of reform. Now, over a decade later, uh, if we look across the board, the actions that are positive are in the small minority, and the actions that are hostile to human rights that single out democracies like Israel are in the majority. I believe America should stay and fight those injustices. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Neuer. Uh, to reinforce something uh, Mr. Malinowski said, I have, I have no doubts that uh, authoritarian regimes and the broader international community uh, will uh, pay some measure of attention to some of the words that are said here today. Um, so uh, thank you much. Uh, Mr. Picone. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and Senator Merkley, for this opportunity to share my thoughts on why the United States should stay actively engaged with the UN Human Rights Council. Let me start by underscoring what the Council is and does. It's a political body composed of governments elected by the UN General Assembly and issues resolutions on country situations or thematic topics like torture or freedom of religion but it also authorizes independent experts and fact-finding bodies to conduct country visits to monitor, investigate, and report publicly on specific violations of human rights in some of the most dire situations in the world, from North Korea and Iran to South Sudan and Eritrea. And when these actions are taken by consensus or even a majority of such a diverse group of countries that sit on the council, then I think we're seeing an effective body uh, more effective than what if we could do it by ourselves. Um, the council's activities mean a lot to human rights victims and they shine a, li a light on abuses and create a historical record. But they also put pressure on member states to remedy these violations. I have documented hundreds of cases in which this has occurred. We should also keep in mind that the Council is but one part of a UN system that uh, tries to mainstream human rights across the UN, and that this entire human rights pillar uh, accounts for only 3% of the UN's regular budget. So really, we're trying to do human rights on the cheap, and we need to start matching expectations with resources. Areas of progress, let me highlight four. Universal Periodic Review is a new council mechanism that for the first time examines the human rights record of every country in the world. It is a remarkable 100% rate of participation, underscoring the universality of international human rights principles. This means that governments that too often have escaped any UN scrutiny for political reasons now receive public questioning and recommendations and the five governments that have received the most recommendations are among the most repressive in the world. Cuba, Iran, Egypt, North Korea, and Vietnam. Many of these governments have accepted hundreds of these recommendations for reform, and now the work is to follow up and implement them. Second, country-specific scrutiny. Uh, in addition to universal review, the Council has dramatically increased the number of independent experts and fact-finding missions to examine abuses in these specific countries, some of which I've already mentioned. Um, since creation of the Council, uh, the number of country-specific reports by these independent experts has increased by 104%. Third, commissions of inquiry. Increasingly establishing special expert bodies to investigate the worst violations of human rights, including crimes against humanity. Since 2011 alone, the Council has created 17 such commissions, including Libya, Syria, and North Korea. 
and their work documents violations and their victims quickly before the evidence is destroyed or witnesses lost. And we've talked about North Korea. We can talk about it some more about what it has accomplished. And then fourth, I think area of progress is on access to civil society. The Human Rights Council is known as one of the most open and accessible bodies in the UN structure. NGOs are actively involved and special rapporteurs reach out to them when they visit countries on the ground. Now, we've also talked about some shortcomings and membership is clearly one of them. Um, there is criteria for candidates for elections and for sitting on the council and they're not working to prevent some of the worst violators uh, from getting a seat on the body. Um, the clean slates problem we, we've talked about, um, but we know that when slates are competitive, the General Assembly has voted to deny seats to some of the worst human rights performers, including Russia, which was mentioned previously. I can uh, uh, further talk about some of the steps that can be taken to address this membership problem. On Israel, another major shortcoming, we've all, uh, I think, can agree that the treatment of Israel is patently biased and unfair. I would suggest that this is a, maybe an opportunity for the Trump administration to work with uh, other like-minded states, including in the Arab world and the High Commissioner for Human Rights, to broker an agreement to eliminate the permanent agenda item on Israel and reduce the number of resolutions to one omnibus resolution. Um, and I would not argue in favor of conditioning U.S. membership on the council. I, I think it's too blunt a tool. Another area that needs attention is protecting human rights defenders from reprisals. Um, and the council, I think, should be very strict when there are cases of reprisals against those that are cooperating with the council, that they be called out on it and even disqualified uh, from membership. And the, UN, uh, has a, uh, the U.S. has a role to play in pushing that. On U.S. leadership... Uh, on the body. We know what the council can do with and without U.S. leadership. We saw it in 2006 to 2009 when the, council, when the U.S. was absent from the council. They adopted the Israel uh, OPT as a permanent agenda item, convened many special sessions, uh, and other things. It's, it, it passed a shameful resolution on Sri Lanka before that problem got fixed under U.S. leadership um, and terminated mandates on Cuba and Belarus. After the U.S. joined, uh, the disproportionate attention on Israel dropped significantly, and then the scrutiny on dire cases like North Korea, Syria, and Iran increased dramatically. There are several other things the U.S., uh, I think, managed to achieve during its time on the Council. Uh, I mentioned some of them, uh, including on North Korea and Syria, and also on important thematic topics like freedom of association, preventing violence based on sexual orientation, and condemning governments that block access to the Internet. Finally, uh, let me jump to my final comments. The United States, I think, faces a clear choice. Engage proactively as a principal catalyst or withdraw and let authoritarian states manipulate and control the agenda. And they are ready and willing to do so, as others have pointed out. I think basically protecting human rights is too important to our national interests to be left to the spoilers and the naysayers. And I think we, in particular, have a special role to play. And to lead effectively, we must practice what we, what we preach abroad. And I think Congress, now more than ever, is so important to demonstrate to the world that our long-standing commitment to protecting human rights is deep and bipartisan. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Picone. Uh, there's, there's a lot of agreement across the panelists with respect to your assessment of, of the Human Rights Council, and um, there are two 
particularly salient areas uh, as I see it, and uh, my initial questions will will address each of them. First is anti-Israel bias and, and secondarily council membership. Um, each of you just indicated in your statements uh, that there was an anti-Israel bias at, at the UN Human Rights Council. When you consider the horrendous human rights track records of many of the members of the council, uh, I've mentioned China, Cuba, there's also Venezuela, it's a real indictment of the council that Israel, the only liberal democracy in the Middle East, is the only country in the world targeted with a permanent agenda item. You consider human rights atrocities committed by Moscow, Tehran, Pyongyang, and the Assad regime. To name just a few, the fact that the council has targeted Israel with more than half of its resolutions criticizing countries since 2006, without putting too fine a point on it, is shameful. Uh, Mr. Silverberg, you've called the anti-Israel bias a stain on the council. Ms. Mr. Malinowski, you called it outrageous. Mr. Picone, you called it biased, unfair, and hypocritical. Uh, Mr. Neuer, you suggest the council's obsession with Israel best highlights the chasm between the promise versus the performance of the council. So we have consensus here uh, that this is unacceptable. Based on that consensus, here's the open-ended question for all of you. What specific steps can our government take working with our international partners to get Israel removed from the permanent agenda of the Council. And I will begin with Mr. Pacone because I think you actually proposed um, uh, it, reducing the number of agenda items to one. Perhaps you could restate that proposal and expound a bit upon it, and then I'll give others an opportunity to respond. Sure. Um, each March, there are a number of resolutions on the docket of the uh, Human Rights Council agenda that focus on, on Israel. And I think this is obviously excessive. They're highly repetitive, and they're way out of proportion to anything else. So I think uh, one way of addressing this is Number one, get rid of agenda item seven and put it under what's called item number four, which is where a lot of other country-specific situations are handled. So Israel should be treated like any other country in the world. That is the fundamental principle that we're aiming for. And then you could you know, say, okay, we have a certain number of concerns, and here they're being addressed in one resolution. But it's, gotta, it's a political issue, and so it's got to require U.S. leadership with Arab countries specifically, uh, to sit down and figure out how this can be uh, negotiated. Mr. Neuer. The question of item seven has... The, the question of the special agenda item against Israel actually dates back about 50 years. Uh, in fact, uh, few are aware that the, effectively the precursor to the special agenda item against Israel began before there was even a universal agenda item for other countries. It was only after there was special attention on Israel and a couple of other countries when eventually it was expanded to be a universal uh, agenda item separate from the one on Israel. So we're really going back to a problem that dates back at least 50 years. The um, architect of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, René Cassin from France, walked out of the Tehran Human Rights Conference of 1968 when they began this singling out of Israel. And it really hasn't gone away. In, in, when the Human Rights Council promised it would change that, that was the promise of Kofi Annan. They specifically cited the agenda item targeting Israel that plagued the old commission. They promised that the new council would have, quote, a clean slate and would be universal in its treatment of human rights situations. And, of course, that was not the case. In June 2007, and I was there, they uh, shamefully adopted, once again, the special agenda item against Israel. It would be extremely difficult to remove it, given the current 
majority that exists. There is an automatic majority at the Human Rights Council of about 25 to 30 out of 47 states that will support any measure singling out Israel. And for them, the agenda item is a vital part of their agenda. So I think it'll be extremely difficult. Nevertheless, the United States needs to uh, go on the record and try its best to fight it. Mr. Malinowski. Thanks. Um, I think um, the goal should be to get rid of the standalone agenda item first and foremost. That's the most outrageous um, uh, piece of this. Um, I I think the the politics has gotten better for us, although I, I certainly agree we don't have the votes right now. Just to give you an example, when this was created uh, in 2007, at the beginning of the, this version of the Human Rights Council, uh, only Canada stood up to object. We were not members, so we couldn't. Um, today, uh, virtually every Western country joins us in boycotting the session when they come up uh, onto to item seven. We still don't have the majority that we need. The key, I think, as I suggested in, in my testimony, uh, and this is not a Geneva issue, this is not a Human Rights Council issue, this, this is an issue um, that, that, that relates to specific countries in the Middle East that lead the charge in keeping this on the agenda and proposing these resolutions. And we are very, very upset about it, and we make speeches about it, and we go to Geneva and we yell and scream, but frankly, we almost never raise it in a bilateral context with our allies in the Middle East. I think I agree with Mr. Pagone. We have an opportunity now with a new administration. I doubt it came up in these meetings in Saudi Arabia that just happened, but they have an opportunity, if they want, to persuade our allies as part of the broader Middle East push that's underway um, to make this concession. Anything to add, Ms. Silverberg? Yeah, so I'll just say, you know, I have great respect for Tom's ability as a diplomat. And so if he tells me that the Obama administration won all of the winnable fights in Geneva, I believe him. Um, But I think the Trump administration has to try. One, as Ted and Tom pointed out, the Trump administration has invested in a different set of relationships. It has a different set of leverage. And as they pointed out, I think they need to try to make use of them. Tom is absolutely right that The United States has been too reluctant to put UN issues in the middle of our bilateral relationships. The late Ambassador Holbrook used to say that blaming the United Nations um, for a problem in New York was like blaming Madison Square Square Garden for a poor showing by the Knicks. And there's a fair amount of truth in that, that the problems, the real problems in UN capitals are almost always the result of member state behavior rather than the There are certainly issues with the institution itself, but it's member states really who are driving these. So my own view is they should make a try. They should make it an issue in our bilateral relationships. I would do it through a one-line resolution in New York as part of the General Assembly um, and try to build a consensus between sort of support with the Arab group and also support for the countries of Europe who want the U.S. to stay engaged in the Council. Thank you all. Senator Merkley. I want to continue for a moment the the conversation over the permanent agenda item. And I I have the the list of the the membership here. Uh, I am wondering if the president's trip to the Middle East and the alliance of interests that exists now between a number of Sunni nations and Israel 
in regard to some, well, Iran specifically, may create an, an opening for ending agenda item seven. Do any of you think, of you think that that's uh, an, is there an opening right now? Yes. I, I think it should be tried and, and it should be explored. I'm skeptical. Some of the regimes, the governments that you uh, contemplated uh, are indeed, do indeed have a, an on-the-ground alliance of interest with, with Israel. Certainly Egypt, for example, is cooperating with Israel very substantially on the ground. However, the moment you come to the United Nations arena, you get completely removed from what's happening on the ground. And sometimes you even see the opposite. You see governments that for their own strategic reasons, may want to cooperate with Israel, but haven't yet built up legitimacy for that position among their people. And so at the United Nations, they, often, they will often do the opposite and actually uh, aggravate their anti-Israel positions. So I'm skeptical that the opening you're seeing on the ground will translate to the United Nations, but nevertheless, I think it should be explored. And so this concept that the U.S. should at least explore it, or perhaps make a, a motion, carry a vote, carry a discussion, would all of you support uh, the United States uh, putting that up? Um, yes, I think it's a testable proposition that hasn't been tested. Um, I, I wouldn't make the motion without doing the diplomatic groundwork, of course, uh, but I think uh, if the Trump administration um, is indeed serious in its aim of resetting relationships with our Gulf partners, with Egypt. I have concerns about that for other reasons, but if that's their intention, this should be one of the dividends of their approach. Mr. Nalinowski, you I think you mentioned that we don't raise it often in bilateral discussions, and that, I guess that, that piece does uh, surprise me. Uh, and because those discussions are often private, it's a chance to weigh in on something that, uh, that we care a lot about. And I believe, Ambassador, in your remarks, you encouraged us to carry on such advocacy. Yes, sir. I think, as you know, the State Department provides an annual report to Congress on how other countries vote with us in the United Nations. And I think that's a real opportunity to start to put some of those issues, not just in Geneva, but across the UN system, to start to put them into the bilateral relationship. It's sometimes the case that countries um, are antagonists in New York, not despite the fact that they're U.S. partners, but sort of because of the fact that they're U.S. partners. They use, they use, um, they contest us in New York to make up for the fact that they're working with us in other ways as a way to sort of appease their publics. And I think we need to really raise the costs of doing that. Um, it's very difficult when you're at the State Department in an international organization or human rights function and you raise these issues, you'll sometimes hear from the regional bureau, well, we have a list of 17 other priorities for Egypt and we can't possibly raise that issue. But the cost of that is that, is that the countries who oppose the U.S. and New York and Geneva continue to do that without any real penalty. Uh, thank you. Mr. Picconi, I want to turn to your, your note that... Um, we now have a lot of commissions of inquiry that we didn't have before, and you mentioned 17 such commissions. That was over what time frame? That was since 2011. And that's a, a team that, that goes out and researches on the ground in the relevant nations? 
Yes, it's usually a team of three high-level experts. Sometimes it is this special rapporteur who's already been appointed to that country, for example, in the case of North Korea, and then supplemented by two others. And then there's a quick action uh, staffing component that OHCHR puts together. And they begin the process of uh, getting, trying to get access to the country. When they cannot get access to the country, they begin uh, collecting testimonies from people outside the country. In some cases, they've been able to use video uh, link-ups to reach uh, witnesses. And they've also used satellite imagery, in the case of North Korea, to actually see what was going on in some of the camps and then bring that out to the world. And as you know, in the North Korea case, it has led to really important action in terms of uh, bringing this human rights issue to the Security Council agenda. So directly making the link that Ambassador Halley has made between human rights and international peace and security. Have we seen any of the recommendations? I, they make recommendations in these? Yes, they do. Have, have we seen countries that have adopted those recommendations and have said, you know, you're right, uh, let's, let's change some of these things, let's improve our, our international standing? Many of these commissions are contested by the subject state and they are not willing to cooperate with them. Nonetheless, they go forward as best they can to at least document what's going on in the country. Um, and so that provides a public record eventually for some kind of criminal accountability. In the case of Syria, the commission, supplemented by additional experts that were recently appointed by the UN General Assembly, are putting together a list of names that are on their lock and key at the in Geneva that will be used in The Hague, hopefully one day, to hold those people accountable. So it may help hold people accountable, but I guess I'm also wondering if before the date of such possible accountability arrives, that has it actually changed the practices? Has it helped persuade some of these countries to change their practices? Uh, Mr. Malinowski? Um, in just picking up on, on your exchange with Mr. Picone, in, in my diplomatic career, I've hardly ever had a witness breaking down on a witness stand moment where a government says, you know, you're right, we're doing wrong, we'll, we'll take all your recommendations into account. But what I found is that when there is active scrutiny of a country's behavior, um, that scrutiny in fact can and does, in many cases, create a deterrent. I think the biggest test of this was the North Korea Commission. Like if there's one country in the world where you, you would expect there would be zero impact on a government's behavior. So it's the toughest test. And yet, I, I have spoken to defectors from North Korea, including people who've been in the camps, who have told me that when there is greater international attention to the human rights situation in our country, our former country, including this commission, the treatment of prisoners in the labor camps improved. So if it can work, even, and it's a very modest effect in North Korea, but even if it can work in, in that kind of setting, where one hopes that camp commanders are thinking, you know, darn, my name appeared in this report. This may not be good for me in the future if Korea is reunified. Then I think it can work just about anywhere. And I think in Burundi and other cases, I picked up on a similar dynamic. Uh, thank you. Before I um, ask a question about membership, which I know is something uh, of interest uh, to uh, each of you. I'd like to pick up on a, a remark made by uh, Mr. Neuer uh, and a similar remark by Ms. Silver 
Silverberg, um, pertaining to this dynamic of, of countries that are improving their relations, Sunni countries, uh, many of the GCC countries, improving their relationship uh, with uh, the state of Israel. So, and yet they will very publicly at the Human Rights Council uh, exhibit an anti-Israel bias uh, for the people back home. Mr. Neuer, I, I have, I, I've got a couple of thoughts here and perhaps you can clarify. One is, is we could change the calculus as Ms. Silverberg has suggested, change the calculus of these countries by not, uh, and, and encouraging them not to exhibit that bias by increasing the cost of exhibiting the bias, right? Another concern though is, is if you aggravate that relationship which is improving, you don't allow them to publicly vent, will you undermine that improving relationship? Perhaps you could speak to that and, and Ms. Silverberg, uh, you could expand on, on your position. I think the, the experts will have to consider on a case-by-case -case basis what the relationship is with each country and, and when it... Let's take Saudi Arabia. Yes. So Saudi Arabia is an example, and actually today it's not the Human Rights Council, but a lot of the things that happen at the United Nations happen across the board. Today in Geneva, the World Health Organization just met for its annual assembly, and they just voted to single out one country in the world for health conditions, and that's Israel, its treatment of Palestinians and, and the Druze in the Golan Heights who live uh, exceptionally well. So the resolution was absurd. The co-sponsors included not only Syria, so the co-sponsor of the resolution and the Palestinians, but also Saudi Arabia and other Sunni countries like Kuwait. So that's just an example today where even as President Trump flew from Saudi to Israel and there were reports in the press that Saudi Arabia would be open to allowing overflights and other changes, improvements in their relationship with Israel. And it's been reported that there are uh, private dealings with Israel. Uh, they, they clearly have, have no problem with, with going along with these things. I, I, I think it should be tried. I'm not worried that, that it would, it would uh, hurt, hurt the relationship. I think it should be tried. Okay. So um, there, we will soon be considering here in the United States Senate whether or not to, to offer certain uh, precision-guided weapons uh, to the Saudis to carry on uh, their fight uh, in, in Yemen. This could conceivably be a precondition uh, for that. That certainly would be leverage, one would think. Uh, that, would that be a bridge too far or um, something you need to reflect more on? I won't put you on the stop, spot. I, I would not want to go specific on, on which measures should be held as preconditions. There are many things which the United States uh, wants the Saudis to do and to not do. Women's rights is one example. As you know, Saudi Arabia was just elected to the Women's Rights Commission of the United Nations, something that we exposed. Uh, that's also a very important matter on how they treat women. So I, I think there's, there, across the board, these things will need to be looked at. Ms. Silverberg, you want to increase the cost, change the calculus. <laughs> we, there are a lot of equities in our relationship with every one of these countries, and yes. I wouldn't suggest that this has to be top of the list. I don't think it has to be, actually. It's, it's a very low-cost request to these guys that they basically do their venting in a place where we don't pay the cost. So right now, the fact that they are putting us in this uncomfortable position in Geneva is what's raising this question about our continued ability to use the Council to pursue our human rights agenda. It's the same thing with the Security Council. When I was Assistant Secretary, all of every veto instruction I had to issue had, was on an Israel-related resolution, which was advanced principally by a key U.S. partner. 
So they put the United States in the position, uh, in an uncomfortable position as a way of, um, you know, we paid the cost for that. And so I think it would be enough actually for the Trump administration to say, this is a priority we're watching and we'd like you to take the venting elsewhere. Thank you. Um, with respect to membership, more than half the countries on the council are designated by uh, Freedom House in their 2017 Freedom in the World report as either not free or partly free. I ask all of you, what can and should the United States and our international partners specifically do to keep the world's worst human rights abusers off the council? You might address uh, in your an answers how we can increase the frequency of suspensions for countries that fail to respect human rights and whether it would be helpful to end the use of closed states, which Mr. Malinowski suggests denies UN members the ability to vote for the best candidates and against the worst. Uh, Mr. Malinowski. Well, I'll start with the closed slates problem. And you, you know how this works. The, the elections, uh, all members of the UN can vote, but the slates are selected by the regional groupings. And so if Africa gets four seats, if they nominate four members, then there's no choice. Those four will go through, however popular or unpopular they are. Last year, the Eastern Europe group did the right thing and nominated more than the number of uh, allotted uh, seats that they had, and Russia lost. It was a really, really big, uh, big deal. Um, I would add that one of the regional groupings that um, doesn't do the right thing and that maintains a closed slate is our own. So we are, uh, we, you know, we, we have to be willing, uh, if we believe in this, to run ourselves on an open slate and to subject ourselves to um, the, the judgment of the members. And that's sometimes uncomfortable for the State Department. We'd rather be assured of victory ourselves, even as we want the right to vote on others. Um, but I think this is the key reform that would make a, a big difference. Mr. Picone? Yeah, I would, in addition, uh, add a couple things. I mean, it really requires an effort with other like-minded states to recruit others that we think will be on, our, on the right side on these issues to run. And for a lot of low-income or small island states, they don't have the resources to manage a mission in Geneva. And there is a technical assistance fund to support them, so let's continue to support that. It's made a difference. We've had uh, Sierra Leone, a small, very poor country that joined the council, and we worked very effectively with them um, to break up that Africa block on some, some key votes. Um, we also need to uh, use the annual elections process to really embarrass the worst uh, country states. And I think you can go further. And when you do have a closed slate, you can still deny a state by uh, making sure they don't get the 97 minimum votes to even get on the council. So it's hard, but why not go for, for that kind of goal? Can I interject? What would that look like to embarrass uh, a, a, a candidate country in the sure. course of an election? Uh, I think you, you convene public sessions on the margins of the UN General Assembly around election time, and you call on the Office of the High Commissioner to give a report on whether a state is cooperating with the council, have the invited country visits people. You then have human rights activists come and give a report on how they're actually performing on the ground. And there are criteria criteria that are adopted by all the member states about how to elect candidates. And you just use the criteria that they've agreed to. Um, I think, uh, well, those are my main recommendations on that. Anyone else? That was, that was quite helpful. Mr. Neuer. 
Yes, I think this is a vital issue. UN Watch has, since the beginning of the Council, been leading the opposition uh, each year to the election of dictators. We've brought the most famous human rights victims to the United Nations in New York to argue against the election of China, Cuba, Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, and sadly, with just really a handful of exceptions, they always get reelected. So how do we fix that? I think two things need to happen. One is serious diplomatic heavy lifting by the U.S. State Department together with its allies. To date, we have not seen that, in my opinion. We saw Russia losing, so I assume that some work had happened behind the scenes, but otherwise, in the past decade, we've seen very little of it. Why do you believe that is, very quickly? I mean, I, you know, it's not as though uh, our, our Congress, our government, um, is not a friend of Israel. We are a friend of Israel. We're close allies. So why do, you, why do you think that's been the case? Well, if we look at Saudi Arabia, for example, being elected, the U.S. obviously is a close ally of Saudi Arabia. China being elected, the U.S. may fear to take on China. And you go across the board, I'll defer to those who served in government to respond. But I do want to say one thing. I, we could not get the United States or the European Union to say a word. Forget about what they were doing or not doing behind the scenes. But to go on the record and say that Cuba, China, Venezuela shouldn't be elected... I couldn't get them to go on the record. There was maybe really a handful of cases when Iran and Syria were running, and we exposed that. Then they, they made a statement. But otherwise, they've been completely silent. Yes. Uh, right or wrong, we've, we've had a policy, um, and I'm not sure if you had it in the Bush administration, but, but I think it's been a fairly consistent policy of not publicly announcing our um, votes in the UN for members of various bodies. Because once you do that, then you get into offers of horse trading and negotiations, and we'd rather sort of stay above the fray. Um, so we will say that we have a policy of voting against human rights violators for the Human Rights Council, and you know what that means. Obviously, we're not going to vote for Cuba or Russia or China. Um, we had an active policy, and I'm sure you did in the Bush administration, of trying to recruit good candidates and urging our partners around the world to vote against the bad candidates behind the scenes. But again, for better or worse, different views on this, we, we didn't announce our preferences publicly. I just, we, did, we did generally have that policy. We made a couple of exceptions. One, when Venezuela sought a Security Council seat, we recruited a country to run against them and then ran a very public campaign to try to keep them off the council. In my view, this issue of closed slates of regional consensus candidates goes to some of the core UN dysfunction. It's an issue not just with the Human Rights Council, but really across the board at the UN, is the role of the regional groups. And if the State Department can figure out how to crack that nut, it will really, I think, have enormous positive implications across the system. Thank you. I have so many more questions, but uh, I, I will be passing it to Senator Merkley. And note that uh, we will be concluding in uh, 20 minutes. Uh, Senator Merkley. Well, I'm fascinated that, that there hasn't been a rule strategy to solve this, whether the rule might be that each region must nominate twice as many countries as there are slots, so it creates something competitive, uh, or that there has to be a certain standard in an international report to serve on the Human Rights Council. Have we, have we attempted some strategies to change the kind of internal dynamics that you all are describing, either behind the scenes or as, a, as an actual proposed rule change? We made the proposal as part of the original negotiations over the Human Rights Council. We made the proposal that countries be required to run more than one candidate per seat. 
Um, as Tom said, one of the real issues with this is that the Western group, to which we belong, likes to use consensus candidates, um, that no country likes to put itself forward for election and then lose. This was if particularly in mind for the United States during the negotiations because we had lost a race for the Commission on Human Rights, and so that was in, in the back of everyone's minds. Um, my own view was it's well worth the risk. I would happily see the U.S. lose on occasion if we could actually get at this core issue of countries who really do not have a good faith commitment to the institution filling some of these seats. Would all of you share that, that view that it's worth, worth the risk? Yeah, I think if I have one simple argument to make today is that we're pretty good at winning when we put our minds to it. Um, we've got good diplomats when they are told something is a priority and to go out, fan out around the world from Moscow to Mauritius and, um, and try to win a vote at the United Nations, including for our own membership on a body. If we're really serious about it, I think uh, we're, we're, we're pretty good at winning. So long as we confirm our assistant secretaries and ambassadors and give them a budget, I would add as a as a caveat. <laughs> Very good. Yes, Mr. Uh, I I think the effort should be made, and I just want to note there were some exceptions to the policy of not speaking publicly in opposition to candidacies. One was Syria. When we revealed that Syria was being chosen by the Asian group, the United States did go on the record, and the European countries. And the only case that I am aware of did go on the record. A number of them, EU countries, to oppose Syria's. Uh, can candidacy and in the end when you say when we expose that Syria was being Nominated aren't the nominations public aren't people voting on countries that are nominated Th Things tend to be secret until the end I said so, secret until the moment of nomination. Yes dip diplomats in the Asian group told us that Syria was being selected and they were but it wasn't public yet Selected to be a nominee correct and then but the entire membership of the UN is voting secretly on on these on these no, I see some shaking heads no there. No, no, once the candidates, sorry, once the candidates are known, then it's, it's, a, it's a public vote. Um, what, what our policy has been, with admittedly some exceptions to the rule, is that we don't, when there's an election for members of a particular UN body, be it the Human Rights Council or the Security Council or something else, we have generally not publicly announced who we are voting for and who we are voting against right. for the reason that I mentioned. Right, right. No, I cut that. And there's an argument for and against that policy, but that has been generally the standard in very egregious cases, and, and I think that's a, that was a good example that you raised. We, we have um, been more honest and, and just said, of course, we're voting against Syria. Well, I, I imagine, are you, you wanted to weigh in Just, as well? I mean, the final vote, we know the vote tally, but we don't know how every country voted right, for which government. Secret. But we right. have had cases where, through our diplomatic channels, hearing about candidates that are being discussed and activated an effort to derail certain candidates and knowing that they would lose, they withdrew their candidacy. That happened with Iran. And then when there have been open uh, contests, we've also defeated uh, countries like Azerbaijan and Belarus and others. Well, it's, yes, Mr. Noor. Yeah, I, I think we, we should redouble our efforts to improve the elections. I do want to say that if that fails, which according to recent experience it will fail, then we should consider scrapping the entire election process and going to 
what exists in New York in the third committee where every country is a member because the elections currently serve the dictatorships. The Saudi ambassador in Canada, when he was challenged about their human rights record, said, what are you talking about? We were elected to the Human Rights Council. They use election to the Human Rights Council as a false badge of international legitimacy. And if, if the election system continues to fail, we should scrap it and let, let every country, which are already observers and present in Geneva, let them be members. Well, I'll tell you, one thing that would be of value to us is to have you all, with your experience, suggest to us three or four different ideas that could also be suggested to the Ambassador of the United Nations. It's a conversation. We went up to UN to, to have an initial conversation with our Ambassador to uh, understand some of the, the things that uh, she was wrestling with, and this Human Rights Council is, is one of those, and, and sometimes it's, 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 the battle is fought on the process as a way of getting to the, to the result. Uh, I wanted to switch to uh, the question of if you get elected, does that protect you from being the target of a commission of inquiry? In, 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 in principle, no, it does not. Not in principle, but in uh, reality. In practice, I'm just fact. quickly running through my mind, uh, the states that have been subject to commissions of inquiry, I think, have not been on the council at the time those decisions were made. Of course, they are given an opportunity to speak and object and lobby others against it, but they have uh, been obviously unsuccessful in those cases that I mentioned. Well, I, I think it's interesting, as you, as you all have noted, that the uh, being elected is sometimes used to, as a defense that, oh, our human rights can't be that bad. We're, we were elected to the Human Rights Council. But I'm guessing an additional incentive to get onto it is to deflect your country being a target of inquiry. Uh, and uh, thus, uh, we, we have kind of this perverse incentive. <laughs> Instead of having the, the countries that are really striving to elevate human rights, we have an incentive for those that are not striving to, to elevate human rights be, be members. And, and that's just a, a fundamental flaw in the design that we have to try to, try to, try to remedy. I wanted to turn to the Universal Periodic Review. Is that done each year? Can There's I a jump in? Oh. So yes, jump it's, in. it's a cycle of um, over a course of four, four and a half years, every country is reviewed once. They've just finished their second cycle. So every country has now been reviewed twice, and recommendations are tabled by governments and accepted or not accepted by the receiving government. And then the second review reviews their implementation of the progress they've made on the first round, among other things. Is this also subject to enormous uh, pressure or manipulation? In other words, if we were to take a group like Human Rights Watch that does totally independent reports, would their results be more or less similar to these internal re, uh, UN universal, uh, these uh, periodic reviews? And if I could interject respectfully, um, I, I always like to stir up disagreement wherever possible uh, in these hearings. And, and I note there is seemingly a disagreement between a couple of our panelists on this. I'd like to get clarity in your position. So, Mr. Picone, you describe UPR in, in pretty positive terms in your testimony. Mr. Uh, Neuer, you say that most of the reviews have failed to be meaningful, effective, or noteworthy, and you cite examples in which there are renowned uh, human rights abusing countries, um, uh, and, and you refer to this essentially as a mutual praise society. So thank you for indulging me. May I just um, hop in? I'm closer to Hillel on this point. Um, in fact, I think I might 
think it's even slightly worse because the fact that this is universal facilitates a kind of moral equivalence. You'll see a paragraph about how Sweden is trying to promote gender equality in the Swedish government, and it looks just like the paragraph on another country that's dealing with extrajudicial killings. It's a very, the fact that countries all go through this actually has some really negative effects. You know, my four-year-old's preschool class has this practice of having everyone go around the room and say something nice about all of their classmates, and UPR functions a little that way, that you'll have the, you know, UPR on Algeria, and you'll have a bunch of countries welcoming progress that Algeria's made and embracing, and that happens with every country no matter what their human rights record. Um, so my own view is actually we really need to think about how, whether UPR is giving the countries without constructive records a positive talking point in their defense. Tom. Yay, we have a disagreement. <laughs> make this interesting. Um, first of all, I think the universality, the fact that Sweden and the United States are subject to this is actually quite helpful. When I, when I was Assistant Secretary for Human Rights, um, it was really, really important to me in a lot of hostile situations dealing with authoritarian governments to say, you know what, the United States has these obligations too. We subject ourselves to scrutiny. We come to Geneva. We're totally open about NGOs asking us questions, other countries challenging us if they think we've got a problem, answering those questions. We're not defensive. You shouldn't be either. And that was a very, it was important for us to be able to say that there is this equality. Number two, absolutely, when Cuba's up there doing its UPR, the Chinese and the Russians will go to that session and they'll praise them. Of course they will. And then the Cubans will praise the Russians. You cannot design any system in the UN in which the dictators won't praise each other. I mean, they're going to do it. But that's not all that happens because the democracies are also on those panels. And we had a policy under the Obama administration of attending every country's UPR and asking tough questions. And there are other democratic countries that do the same thing. And so Algeria, sure, they're going to get some praise from somebody, but they will also have five or six countries on that panel asking them about freedom of expression, political prisoners, how they treat LGBT people and women. And for the powerful countries like Russia and China, which because they are permanent members really do have a lot of defensive mechanisms to protect themselves against resolutions and commissions of inquiry, this is the one place where they sit at a table like this with people on a higher uh, panel asking tough questions where they have to answer them, where there are recommendations made that go to the heart of the problem in those countries. And when, you know, when we talk to activists in these countries, they really, really value this process. So um, this is something I'm relatively positive about, more so than other things that go on in Geneva. Mm -hmm. When Gaddafi was reviewed, the New York Times actually wrote a, a whole article quoting the, the reviews, 80% of which were praised for Gaddafi. That number remains consistent for a number of countries. I often speak when the UPR reports are adopted, and I open them up, and I ask one of my colleagues, count, count how many statements and recommendations are praised, and often the number is 80%. So it's really not a small minority. It's a lot. Uh, the, the praise comes from China praising Saudi Arabia for their uh, treatment for their actions on religious freedom, and Saudi Arabia the next day praising China for their treatment of ethnic minorities, but it's also democracies. Many democracies 
fail to stand up and ask concrete, specific, meaningful questions that apply scrutiny. So I think a lot of work has to be done. I'm glad that UPR exists on paper. It's good for NGOs. It's a chance once every four or five years to spotlight China or some other country. But regrettably, what happens in the room too often is then used by those regimes back home. I think the answer, the, the, the action item for democracies is to work much harder in getting our allies to... We're, we're down to just seven minutes left, which I'm going to leave with the, the chair. So I'll just ask this last piece. Uh, Duterte, President Duterte in, in the Philippines, has had now, I think, more than 6,000 extrajudicial killings, encouraging people to be cut down in the, in, in the street. He, Philippines, is on the commission, if this is a recent list. I think, I think it is. Is there ever a case where the Human Rights Commission says there's egregious actions we need to expel someone from the Human Rights Commission? Um, yes, that, that can be done. Um, it was done with Libya, right? So Gaddafi got a lot of praise and then he got kicked out once he got unpopular. That's politics. Um, I think it would be difficult in the case of the Philippines. Um, remember that when the Philippines was elected, uh, I think we were probably quite happy at the State Department because it's a democracy and it's our ally and we thought, oh, it's a lot better than a lot of alternatives um, in Asia and we're all now kind of adjusting to a reality in which there's still a democracy but... So is Libya the, the only case? Is, was, yes, I think so. I want to turn the time back over yeah. to the chairman and I thank you all so much uh, for coming. It, it certainly... Uh, helps us have a much better understanding. I encourage you to uh, follow up with the, the members of the subcommittee on, on ideas you have that we should consider and uh, consider advocating for or uh, consider brainstorming with our, our delegation at the United Nations on and really appreciate your, your service and insights. Thank you. Well, I, I want to thank our ranking member for his thoughtful questions and, and uh, just really enjoy serving with you on this subcommittee. Uh, that exchange on UPR uh, to our panelists was, was clarifying. I think everyone agrees that we should maintain uh, the UPR and, uh, irrespective uh, of its deficiencies, looking perhaps to uh, improve it along the way as we would anything. Um, Mr. Neuer, yesterday you sent a letter to the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights regarding the apparent secretariat policy of disclosing the names of human rights activists attending Human Rights Council sessions to requesting state parties, including China, in advance of the session. Uh, can you describe what's happened? Uh, what's, uh, why, why, would, why would this happen? Why would this be the policy? Uh, why you find it concerning? And uh, perhaps what we should do about it? Thank you. This, this policy, which uh, we find uh, outrageous, is something of direct concern to us because we bring human rights victims to speak. We brought Tiana Wong, whose father, a democracy pioneer in China, remains behind bars for his democracy work. We brought her to testify a couple of years ago at the Human Rights Council. Uh, she was intimidated by uh, Chinese agents who were accredited NGO delegates, but were actually uh, apparently agents of the Chinese regime. They were detained by UN security, and then one of them was expelled because of his actions to harass and photograph our uh, human rights activist. Uh, so Chinese harassment 
is, is a real issue. Actually, Human Rights Watch yesterday had a whole uh, press release about it in various UN fora. Uh, and when we learned from a UN whistleblower, Emma Riley, who works for the Office of the High Commissioner, she was the, that office's liaison to NGOs. And she said that she was instructed by the chief of the Human Rights Council branch to quote-unquote confirm, according to the UN press release, that they confirm names to China. China the Chinese gave about 12 names to the UN, said, are any of these uh, activists coming to the upcoming session? And according to the UN press release of February, of OHCHR, uh, they confirmed that, that, that language is, is a dubious word because China didn't have that information. They gave names to China of activists who are coming. Uh, we find that outrageous. Uh, if, that, if that policy is, uh, is still in existence, it is writ written nowhere on any uh, OHCHR website for activists to know about, uh, and it uh, endangers uh, the safety and security of human rights activists from China and other countries who come to speak uh, at the Council. May I just add that I Please. mentioned in my testimony that the chief of the Human Rights Council branch should be replaced. Um, I would put that high on Ambassador Haley's to-do list on Geneva, and this is one of the many reasons why. Any other thoughts about how we might improve this situation? It seems like a really good start. Can I yes. make a kind of... I, I, forgive me for this, but I think there is a somewhat broader point that that we need to keep in mind, and, and I think both, both of you alluded to it in, in your opening statements, and, and, and that is that if we want to make the Human Rights Council more effective, it presupposes that we care about human rights in our foreign policy, and let's be honest, that is somewhat in doubt right now. I mean, you mentioned the case of the Philippines, and the one thing that I would add to my, my previous answer is that I don't think our government right now would support an effort to remove the Philippines from the Human Rights Council because I'm sorry to say that our president has just endorsed the policy of extrajudicial killings there. And I think there are a lot of questions around the world about whether the Human Rights Council will effectively speak up for human rights, and we have been focused on that in this hearing, but there is a larger question about what the policy of the United States is going to be going forward, um, given, you know, Secretary Tillerson's comments that, you know, this is a value but not a policy, some of the strange things that the President has said, and then very much contrary to that, um, our Ambassador to the United Nations acting very much in the tradition, uh, bipartisan tradition of, of uh, administrations that care about this issue. That's the key thing that needs to be resolved here, and if it's resolved in the right way, then all of our recommendations become relevant. If it's not, then this is kind of deck chairs on the Titanic. I see a number of affirmative nods. I think that's uh, perhaps a very good place to end. I want to thank all of our panelists once again for your thoughtful uh, and thought-provoking testimony, and that concludes our hearing.